Okay, welcome everyone to uh, the second part. In our previous session, we looked at how the sanctuary is the place where theology and worship forms are completely integrated. And so we talked about the destruction of the earthly sanctuary and what its effect was on worship forms. We also talked about the construction of the earthly sanctuary in the days of Hezekiah and its corresponding effect on worship forms as well. And so that was really the point we were trying to get across. And uh, here we're going to switch from the earthly to the heavenly sanctuary. So uh, again, the title of this presentation is, If the Foundations Are Destroyed, What Can the Righteous Do? Well, you know something? It asks a question. But the answer to that question is in the very next text. And we're going to get to that. All right? But before we do, let's, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our study. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the plan of salvation. We're thankful for the three angels' messages and the very pillars that have made us who we are as a people. Father, I ask that you will send your Holy Spirit now in order to help us to grapple with issues that are of a sensitive nature, but yet, Lord, we need to understand. Grant us your Spirit, Lord. Be with each and every person. May you minister to each and every soul during this presentation. And we thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you turn there with me. Psalm chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Psalm chapter 11. I mentioned a dissertation that was, uh, uh, the topic of the dissertation was the Hebrew temple motif in, uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the sanctuary temple motif in the Hebrew Bible. In this dissertation, 43 texts were discussed, and Psalm 11 was one of them. And the purpose of the dissertation was to show the relationship between earthly and heavenly sanctuaries. And so uh, there's no doubt about the fact that this is, this is talking about uh, that relationship between earthly and heavenly. But notice, um, it's in verse 3, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If you're following Ahaz, if you're following an administration that has totally confused God, worship forms, salvation, what do you do? Where do you begin? If you live in a polytheistic environment, in a pluralistic environment such as we live, in a postmodern environment where everyone does that which is right in his own eyes, how is it that you can make people see what the truth is? Verse 4. That's the answer. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. There's no doubt about, there's no doubt about the fact that we live in a pluralistic environment. And that's why it's in the very air we breathe. When we talk about worship forms, it's like, well, does it really matter? The other thing we don't see is how integrated these issues are. Worship forms, God, the plan of salvation, it's all integrated. And so the answer to the problem is looking towards the temple in heaven, 
Well, just a little bit of repetition. Hezekiah followed this plan. That's exactly what he did in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 25 to 28. And so must we. The results were astounding. Against one, again, once Hezekiah laid the foundation, then the structure was built upon it. Now, let me ask you. If I lay down a six-inch foundation, how many of you here would be willing to put a skyscraper on it? I mean, you know that that's, you know, that's not going to work. And what person in their right mind would dig a foundation 200 feet and then put a pole barn on it, 10 by 20? I mean, you know that that's not the way things operate. There is a relationship between the foundation and the structure. So you just can't put any old structure upon any old foundation. And Hezekiah knew where to begin. And we must know where to begin as well. And so when he ordered the Levites to cleanse the temple, to cleanse the sanctuary, are your Adventist ears perking up a little bit? Does that theme remind you of something? <laughs> when he ordered them to cleanse that sanctuary, to reconsecrate it, there was an immediate and direct effect on worship forms. And he went back to what was called the instruments of David. And where did David receive his plans from? Did he make them up? No, they were from God himself. And that's why when you read uh, 2 Chronicles 29 verse 25, and it mentions the liturgy and the instruments that, to, that were to be used, it directly then states the authority upon which that counsel was given. Not just Gad and Nathan and so forth and so on, but so was the commandment of the Lord by His prophets. There is a very close relationship between worship forms and authority. We ought to know that as, uh, as Sabbath keepers. I mean, when I preach an evangelistic series, who has authority to tamper with Almighty God and the Ten Commandments and the Fourth Commandment? I mean, that is directly linked with the issue of authority. Who's got the authority to do that? Is the church above the Bible? No. But yet, when it comes to worship forms, we're getting confused. Now, I'm not pretending to have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. What I'm presenting here before you is something very broad that can be built upon. It's not a cookie-cutter approach. But I really believe that if we can download this into our thinking, it will help us to then give a good reason for why we're doing what we're doing, a reason that is connected to our theology and to the pillars, things that made us who we are. So when Hezekiah stepped out, yes, the results were astounding. They had never celebrated a Passover like that for a long, long time. Just making some applications now. Doesn't the Bible say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 that Christ is our Passover? And so could it be that as we discover the systematic role of the heavenly sanctuary and integrate that with our ideas about God, the plan of salvation and worship forms, could it be then that our relationship with Jesus will be even more vibrant than what it's ever been before? I don't know about you, I was not raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, and when I went to church, I would ask my mom or my dad, you know, went to a Greek Orthodox church, Christmas, Easter, that was about it. Why are we standing up at this time? I don't know. Why are we sitting down? I don't know. Why is the priest going around like this, you know, with the incense? Why is he doing that? I don't know. Why is he walking around the altar? I don't know. 
pretty soon you stop asking questions and you learn really quick that religion is not something you're supposed to understand. So you turn your brains off and you go to church and you stand up and you sit down and you do what you're supposed to do and you're out of there. So I remember attending my first evangelistic meeting and the preacher preached on this text. Well, he didn't preach on it. He alluded to it, but it was like a lightning bolt in my mind. Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together. That was a paradigmatic shift in my mind. <laughs> you mean, wait a minute, you mean I can understand this stuff? You mean it's, it's supposed to make sense? It's supposed to be clear? Well, duh, if there's a God who created the universe, what makes me think that He couldn't communicate clearly? And so when I began to understand, Jesus was somebody then totally new. Then I could worship Him, you know, with heart and with mind and with soul. Why? Because I understood now. And so could it be that as we uncover what God has given to us as a people, as we really grapple with it and integrate it with God and, 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 uh, and the plan of salvation and worship forms, could it be then as we begin to understand and then as we begin to see the world as our mission field, we're just going to know Jesus a whole lot better. That's why they celebrated a Passover unlike any other Passover. There was an immediate explosion in evangelism as well. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 5 to 12, when they celebrated that Passover, they invited all the northern tribes. You remember what Jeroboam did, right? He turned his back on the sanctuary because he didn't want them to go down to Jerusalem three times a year. And so as a result, the people would go to Dan and Bethel. And so they were not going to the major festivals. They were not going to Passover and all the other ones. But now here you have a king that set things up in the right way. And now the immediate effect is, look, we got some northern brothers and sisters here. They haven't been here for a while. Did that just pop out of thin air? I mean, why didn't they think of that before? Why didn't they think about this vibrant experience with Christ before? Why didn't they think about these worship forms before? And I really want to drive that point home. So if you find myself repeating that point, it's got to be driven home. Because without a system, everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. In 2 Chronicles 31 verse 1, there's the destruction of idolatry. Did Hezekiah begin by tearing down all the altars? No, he didn't do that. And so we ought to remember that in our evangelistic approach. You know, when my wife, when she brought me home to meet her mother, I, can just, I know I gave that lady gray hairs. Because I had a lot more hair, and it was a lot longer. And when she looked at me, she thought, goodness, man, what did she bring home? <laughs> you know, but God sees what's on the inside. <laughs> and uh, they didn't start tearing apart my lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. It was, you know, let's come, let, let's come to Jesus and let's see what the Bible has to say. And as I began to understand the plan of salvation and the work that Jesus was doing in the heavenly sanctuary, well, then it all began to make sense. Certain music began to go. The gold chains began to go. The drinking began to go. All that stuff began to go. Why didn't it go before? <coughs> Again, friends, when, when the sanctuary is cleansed and reconsecrated and set up, you will find a domino effect moving in the right direction. And then all the creativity that God has lavished on our young people and our not-so-young people and our musicians and our artists and so forth can be given some guidance. 
Without that, we're like a compass in the middle of the Pacific, not knowing which direction we're going into. Whatever way the wind blows, that's the way we're going to go. And so, you know, we, we, you know, when I first came to church, nothing about the music was right. You know, I was a jazz rock drummer. And so everything I would hear would be filtered through that environment. Man, I wish the pianist would keep time. They, they, they slow down, they speed up, they can't do it right. But really, it was my own tastes that were out of whack. That's, that's what was out of whack. But back in 1990, man, is it really that long? I expected church to be different. I really did. And so, uh, so the music part didn't really bother me. And I sure wasn't there for the music at first, I can tell you that. So, and that wasn't because there were people there that, that didn't know how to play. But uh, I'd really fallen in love with the Three Angels' messages. Amen. And that's really what's going to hold people. Okay, so, so there was the destruction of idolatry. In 2 Chronicles 31, verses 3 to 10, there was a complete explosion in tithes and offerings. Why weren't the people giving before? Why, why weren't they giving before? What happened? Again, friends, when you set the foundation according to the directions of God, there are all kinds of blessings. And I'm not going to pretend this morning that I know how to do all this stuff. I'm just grappling with it right now. And so we need to all work together in order to try to make this happen. In 2 Chronicles 31 verses 2, 11 and 19, the priests and the Levites are reestablished according to the pro proper order and administration. Kind of reminds me when the Seventh-day Adventist Church was floundering around the late 1800s into 1900. And Ellen White said in 1901, you know what? If there's not a major reorganization, if we don't begin to see the world as our mission field and organize ourselves in such a way to reach the world, what are we doing? But it was the whole vision of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary that made that even possible. Do you remember what, Jer uh, what Jeroboam did in 1 Kings chapter 12? Now, when you set up your own worship services, then yeah, you can, you can ordain your own priests and prophets in order to administer them. And obviously, there's not a connection between those priests and prophets and the theology of the sanctuary. It's not there. Now, this is very interesting because to me, this is the time in which we live right here. Whoops, I didn't mean to do that. This is the time, this is the time in which we live. In 2 Chronicles 32, verses 1 to 23, the Assyrians are coming. They have taken over the northern tribes. They have taken over many of the cities of Judah. And now they have their guns aimed at Jerusalem. And the Rabshakeh is very intimidating. He says, don't let Hezekiah persuade you that the God of heaven is going to deliver you. What have all the gods of all these other nations been able to do? We've taken over them, and you're going to be just like them. Why don't you make an agreement with us? Why don't you compromise? And we'll let you live. We'll let you live in your own land for a little while before you take, we take you away and make you slaves. And I'm afraid that too many of us, when the test comes during the time of trouble, are going to compromise. If our feet are not planted on something rock solid, if we are not following Christ by faith, in the heavenly sanctuary, 
Have you ever noticed that God's people were sometimes a day late and a dollar short? When Jesus was hanging up on the cross, what were the priests doing? Offering up the same useless sacrifices. When type had met anti-type, some people were not ready. In 1843 and in 1844, when the entire Christian world was studying Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, the same thing began to happen. Those that rejected that, that, that message were praying to someone that was in the holy place. And you need to read the book Early Writings. It was to the enemy of souls because Jesus was no longer there. A day late and a dollar short. We need to follow him where he is at. And if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to survive. Look at 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15 for a minute. Very interesting. Now you think, well, what's this got to do about worship and worship forms and all that? Well, again, friends, when the, when the foundation is set up, not only is there a corresponding effect in worship forms, but there's tithes and offerings, there's, uh, there's evangelism, there's all these other effects, there's a proper order and administration, there... Uh, and then when trouble comes, when the Assyrians surround the city, which I believe is a type of the final destruction, when the Assyrians begin to surround the city, you've got to pray to the, to the God of heaven. And notice where Hezekiah prays. or I mean, he's, he's, He spread out the letter from Sennacherib. And uh, in verse 15 it says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims. Very interesting. Where's that? He's in the most holy place. That's where God is at. He says, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Are you seeing the connections here between the sanctuary and creation and Sabbath? Friends, when that time comes, we better have confidence in where Jesus is at right now. But let me let you in on something. Our worship forms give expression to which God we serve and to the plan of salvation. One of my seminary professors said it quite nicely. When the celebration movement first began, people thought that they were just injecting some life into the worship service, and that's all it was. No. It was a celebration of the false view of the atonement. That Jesus had been there and done it all and there was nothing more to do. And I read the dissertation of the pastor who started one of these churches. The whole dissertation. And do you know something very interesting? And all the time that this person was a pastor in one of these major celebration churches, guess what doctrine he had trouble with and he never preached on? The investigative judgment. Duh. Why? Is that just a coincidence? Absolutely not. Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The connection between worship, creation, the plan of salvation, all in one text. But if you are shaky as a pastor on the investigative judgment, if you believe there's no biblical foundation for it, what kind of worship service are you going to have? You're going to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross. Let's celebrate. That's what's going to happen. So Hezekiah then, and you know what? In my last session, the last session is called Watch and Pray or Dance and Play. 
And you can't do both. Amen. If you're a soldier and you're supposed to watch, you got to watch. Amen. You can't be dancing and playing. And when you dance and play, the enemy comes in like an avalanche. Because you're not ready for him. So Hezekiah prays to the God who dwells between the cherubim, and God comes out and destroys the Assyrians. I mean, there was no human way of escape. Just like when Jesus is going to come again. I mean, all guns are aimed at us. Just like they physically surrounded the city, they will surround us. Each and every one of us will be tested individually. We will come to the point where we're going to choose either to sin or to die. And just at that moment, Christ will reveal Himself. Why? Because we've not cast away our confidence. We've held on. And this is a whole package deal. And we ought to learn to think about it that way. The Seventh-day Adventist Church in the Heavenly Sanctuary. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. I mean, they, we studied this. On the 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Did God start with the Sabbath, as important as that is? Nope. No. Did He start with uh, clean and unclean foods? Nope. Did He start with, uh, um, uh, or you name the doctrine, health reform? Nope. Did He start with any of the other distinctives? Nope. No, He did not. Just like Hezekiah. He began at the place where you need to begin. And that is the heavenly sanctuary. The house is built... With the foundation first. I know that's not rocket science. No other way to build it. My brother-in-law used to work in, uh, in Alaska. Out in Bethel, about 400 miles from Anchorage. And because of the permafrost, they had to build you know, above ground. And I said, well, Mark, that should be evidence enough to let you know that humans can't live there. You know? <laughs> so, so what are you doing up there? But you know, every, every house has a foundation. And Jesus identified only two of them, the rock and the sand. Psalm chapter 11 verse 4 points to the reality of the heavenly sanctuary and is the perfect answer to the question in Psalm chapter 11 and verse 3. If the, uh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I'll tell you what he can do and she can do. They can look up to God in his holy temple. That's where he is at. Have you read Revelation chapters 10 and 11 about the great disappointment? Take the book. Eat it up. Sweet in your mouth. Bitter in your belly. And so that's exactly what happened. But when you read Revelation chapter 11 verse 1, it says, you know, rise and measure the temple. Well, what temple? Well, the earthly one had been destroyed. It can only be the heavenly one. And so the heavenly sanctuary is the answer. And we need to look at it more than just this is where the courtyard is and this is where the altar is and this is where all the furniture is and this is the symbolic meaning of the furniture and all that. We need to move a quantum leap ahead of that and say, how does this as a system integrate our understanding of God, salvation, and worship forms? That's really the point here. The multiplicity of worship styles among us are evidence that we've neglected, rejected, or just failed to realize the grounding role of the sanctuary and its relation to worship. What has happened to some of our, to some of our ministers that have forsaken the sanctuary? Sabbath is gone. Clean and unclean is gone. Why? Because it's a whole package deal. It's a whole package deal. 
Worship cannot exist outside of a greater context. It always assumes a context. Illustration. You read Genesis 1. Did God create, you know, seed and then animals and all that and say, oh, wait a minute. I forgot to create the land. Oh, what a dummy. You know. How could I have done that? I didn't even think about that. No. You find the environment created first. The firmament, the land, the sea, and then that which is in them. Things always assume a greater context. Worship is either grounded in the heavenly sanctuary or in the sanctuary itself, or it's grounded on philosophy. That's it. There's no such thing as a neutral worship style. There's no such thing. Now again, I haven't crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. You can probably think of a million specific examples to bring before me. But I'm talking on a theological level now. If we don't have it on a theoretical level, there is absolutely no hope of solving it on a practical level. So, I mean, I have my opinions. The calves of Jeroboam and Ahaz are built upon the worship of nature. The calves of gold. That's how God was understood from the perspective of the calves of gold. They came from nature. You know, you heard the story about the guy that said that, oh, God, creation, that's not a really big thing. I can do that. And so he challenged God to a contest. And uh, they said, okay, well, let's begin. And the guy reached down to pick up some dirt, and God said, no, 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 you get your own dirt. <laughs> that's all, well, if divine revelation goes out, where else can we turn to build a theology of God? It's got to be on what we see, right? That's it. So once this is out, once the sanctuary is out, your understanding of God will come from the creation. And what I mean by that is that whole philosophical structures have been built upon interpretations of creation. Creation understood correctly is in complete harmony with revelation. All right? So we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And actually, we need the two. So this is a, these are formulations about creation that are incompatible or contradictory to Scripture. Roman Catholicism and Evangelicalism have built their worship on reason via Greek philosophy. The Sabbath, for instance. How is it that fundamentalist evangelical Christians who believe that every word in the Bible is inspired in Genesis 1-11, to how can they believe in theistic evolution? How can you believe, you're telling me that every word is inspired here, right? Okay, Genesis 1 to 11. Was it seven literal days or not? Well, it doesn't really matter. It could be theistic evolution. Do you get that? The only way you can get it is on the basis of this Greek philosophical system, which allows for it. Because theology is in the timeless realm with no time and space. History is changeable. And so when the Bible writer said, you know, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, that was the Bible writer's cultural understanding of the timeless truth of creation. So the days of creation had nothing to do with it at all. So there's a dichotomy and a split there that doesn't exist in the Bible when you read it. Like in Great Controversy, page 599 says, we should accept the Bible and read it for what it is except a figure or symbol is employed. When you read it, it's like, what, is, what, what, 
grammatical or linguistic evidence do you have in there that tells you that it's not seven literal days? Nothing. But when you build on this system, that goes, well, obviously what happens to the Sabbath. That's long gone. Israelite worship is based on the reality of the sanctuary. And for us, the heavenly sanctuary. I come from Toronto. There's a lot of hockey there. But uh, the Maple Leafs have never had a good team as far as I know. But hockey is played on an ice rink, not on a football field. I know it's not, I know it's not major stuff. Here's another mind-boggling point. It's not possible to blend the ice rink with the football field. You must choose. We're dealing with two completely incompatible concepts. Either the Bible and the heavenly sanctuary, or Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism built on Greek philosophy. That's your choice. No middle ground. Now, just, a, just an illustration here about how important the heavenly sanctuary is. You ever, you pro, most of you probably heard of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Pum, 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 pum. Dun, 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 dun. Well, imagine I had a score of music here, and this was Beethoven's Fifth right here. This is all the data to Beethoven's Fifth. Now, how many of you could look at that and hear Beethoven's Fifth sounding in your mind? My wife can do it. She's got, uh, she's got perfect pitch. That means that she... I can, I can brag on her now because she's not here. <laughs> when I first met her, I was practicing ear training. And so, you know, I'm a drummer. I'm, you know, there's drummers that are actually good musicians, by the way. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> They're, you know, that are good musicians. And so I was working on my ear training. And she says, oh, can I help you? And I go, oh, sure, yeah. So... She got behind the piano, and I turned this way, and, you know, so anyway, I failed that test. I said, okay, well, maybe it's your turn now. Why don't I go behind the piano? Okay, C, F, G, A flat. Oh, that's too easy. Two notes, C, F. <laughs> oh, okay, three notes. Four notes. Five notes. Ten notes. Ten notes in my foot. <laughs> she could name every single one. I said, what hope is there for me? You know? <laughs> what am I doing here? You know. <laughs> okay, but she could look at the score and it could sound off in her mind. Okay, uh, She actually had a test. This was very interesting. It taught me a lot about the Lord. You know, I couldn't fool him you know, just because we couldn't fool her. Uh, she was in a musicianship class, and they didn't know what she could do. And uh, the teacher said, has anybody seen this sheet of music before? Nobody. Okay, well, I want you to look at it for 20 minutes and then play it. All right, first guy got up. He played about two, three bars. The very best of them could get to bar six or eight. And then she got up, played the whole thing. Nobody got up after that. <laughs> Rock musicians can be so egotistical. I invited her on purpose to one of our, our, our practice sessions. I said, this is going to be good because I don't play a harmonic and melodic instrument. She can't critique me. <laughs> so she came in there, and I tell you what, I'd never seen those guys so nervous before in all their life. Retuning and tuning their guitars and all that. What's <laughs> the matter, fellas? A little intimidated. <laughs> but just imagine 
that uh, you, you, you had that. Now, most of us can't sound it off in our minds, so we need a system to interpret it. What if you pick a ukulele? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to the data? Well, a ukulele has got four strings. And so uh, you're seriously going to compromise the data. There's a lot of the data that just will not be played at all. And there's a lot of the data that can only be played according to the one timbre. The ukulele only gives one kind of sound. But that's not what's written in the score. Well, if you moved up to a piano, you'd be moving in the right direction. Better system. Better able to accommodate all the notes, or many of the notes. But let's face it, the ideal system for Beethoven's fifth, for the data of Beethoven's fifth, is the 120-piece orchestra. That way you know that all of the data is perfectly being accounted for. You're not going to have any nuts and bolts missing, nothing like that. It is all going to be integrated into that. That, let me submit to you, is the role of the sanctuary. It totally integrates all of the biblical data. Greek philosophy cannot do that. The systems that Protestantism and, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church have built on cannot do that. Why? Because they look at Genesis 1-11 to and a host of other teachings and say, that's culturally conditioned. That's the Bible writer's understanding of, of something. It's not really inspired, in other words. God built the sanctuary, and God designed certain instruments to be included, and some to be excluded. The question is why? Was it an arbitrary decision? Does God do anything arbitrarily? No, not at all. So then what we must grapple with is why did he pick some instruments and not others? What does this reveal to us about the biblical philosophy of music? That's really the question that I'm trying to get to right now. Because I know, what, I know what's going on in your minds. Are you saying, Pastor, that we can only use a, a psaltery and a harp? Is that all you can use? Well, God gave the revelation at a certain point in time. And so when He picked some instruments and included, ex, uh, excluded others, we've got to think about why. Well, with stringed instruments, they can be used in such a way that the human voice is not covered up. Especially with a harp. You know, until this century, you couldn't really put a backbeat to a harp. You know, a backbeat is your basic rock rhythm. That's never been done. And even with violins. I mean, only when I grew up, you know, listening to 70s and 80s rock music, did you have one or two groups using a violin like an electric guitar? You know, using it as a, as a guitar solo. But uh, originally it wasn't really designed for that. And so when you think of the sanctuary instruments, when it comes to melody and harmony, high scores. Obviously, you have rhythm. You can't have music without rhythm. Okay? And so, including the harps and excluding... Uh-oh, did I say it? The drum set? <laughs> Not percussion. Now, if you're confused about the difference between the drum set and percussion, you're going to want to come to a future seminar where we can deal a lot more in-depthly on that specific issue. But let's face it. Uh, except for the cymbal, those were excluded. Uh, and Why? There's nothing intrinsically evil about a drum. But we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. This is my way of getting you back. So, so some are included, some are excluded. 
And so this, this definitely speaks to the issue of worship styles. We discussed in the previous session, again, and in this session, that once you lay the foundation, only a certain structure can go on top of that. You can't put anything on top of that. And we're going to find some practical examples in the very next session when we compare Exodus chapter 32 with Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You're going to see from the ground up, philosophically, theologically, going to interpretation of God, going to interpretation of salvation, going directly to worship forms and ethics. It's all contained in Exodus 32 and in Revelation 4 and 5. You'll see it by contrast. And the point will be, this is not an isolated issue, worship forms. They're connected to foundations. Like Jeroboam, Ahab turned his back on the sanctuary and, and adopted cultural forms which have nature as their starting point. Now those who believe that worship forms should be uncritically adopted from culture because it has nothing to do with theology need to ponder this remarkable statement by the servant of the Lord. This is a statement in the book, The Great Controversy. Fascinating statement. Notice where she begins before you even get to worship. It is as easy to make an idol of what? And what else? You ever thought about that? Most people sometimes have the conception, oh, I'm not literally bowing down before something pastor. I'm not, you know, I used to do that in the Catholic or Orthodox Church, but, you know, we don't literally bow down before images now. Well, you need to expand your definition of what constitutes idolatry. It is as easy to make an idol of false doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of what? Just as easy to do that. Now, notice where she begins. By misrepresenting what? Isn't that interesting? Misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan leads men to conceive of him in a false character. Again, she hits it on the head. With many, what kind of idol? A philosophical idol is enthroned in the place of Jehovah. While the living God, notice this now. While the living God, as He is revealed, where? In His Word, in Christ, and in the works of creation, is what? Worshipped by but few. Have you noticed the interrelationships there? She didn't begin with worship. She said, this is what is happening. This is all one integrated package. There's no such, as, no such thing as worship disconnected from God and how He works and how He operates. So, you got a philosophical idol on one end, while the living God, as He is revealed in His Word in Christ and in the works of creation, is worshipped by but few. Worship always assumes a philosophical, theological structure. Human beings assume oxygen, land. You, you, can't, you, know, you can't get around that. That's the environment in which we live. Notice what it says. Thousands deify nature. That means they make a god out of it. They create a philosophical system out of it. They deify nature while they deny the god of nature. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today 
as verily as it existed among the ancient among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. So idolatry does exist in a in a little bit of a different form. As verily as it existed among the ancient among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. Now notice this. The God of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished fashionable circles, getting a little closer, of many colleges and universities, getting even closer, of even of some theological institutions, little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. That is a powerful statement, my friends. Not a lot better, just a little bit better. We can call him Jesus. We can call him all the right names, friends. But if our concepts of worship are not derived from the system of the sanctuary, this is what you're worshiping right here. You can call it what you want. But that's what it is. Now, we shouldn't have what's called theological naivety. Otherwise stated, you know what the wise man said? He says, the curse causeless shall not come. Well, how, did, how did this ever happen to me? You know, well, you know, you, you stop drinking and smoking all that stuff. <laughs> the curse causeless shall not come. So when we introduced and inject something, into the worship service that's not connected with the things that we've been talking about because of the fact that it's integrated with God and the plan of salvation, you then will begin to formulate in your mind the God you serve and worship. You then will begin to make the connections in your mind about how does this God really operate? How does He really save? Is He really in the sanctuary right now? Is this really relevant for us? I mean, it, 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 what practical significance does this have? You will begin to do all the math. And friends, people have done it. And they've walked out of the church. <laughs> it's a complete theological package. And so, may the Lord help us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because that's what He has called us to do. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.